Well, as many of you know, we just returned a couple of weeks ago from a visit to the Holy Land, and it was wonderful as normal. Uh, This was our fourth trip, Beth and my fourth trip to the Holy Land, and every time we have learned something new and something uh, just truly blessed from the experience. But interestingly enough, this time, rather than the visit in the Holy Land being the place where I think we learned the, the most lessons, I think this time... The trip itself, the journey to and from, is where we learned the most lessons this particular time. We did see some great things. And we did learn some new things this time. We saw things that we'd never seen before. For example, we saw uh, some archaeological finds that uh, might not seem particularly interested if you're not a student of the Bible. But if you are, you would find this stuff interesting. Uh, we saw in the city of Hatsor they had found a stone called the David Stone, and uh, we were able to see that, touch that stone, and it's the first only archaeological evidence that's ever been found to back up the existence of David, to back up the fact that there was not only a David, but a Davidic line, that he had a dynasty, and so that was interesting. Of course, we don't need things like that, right? We have the Bible, and we believe it whether we have a piece of rock to back it up or not, but nonetheless, it's interesting to see. Uh, We visited Jericho. We visited every other time, but this time because Josh was with us and he wanted to see more of Jericho, since that's what they named their son, I asked the guide, I said, listen, every time we go to Jericho, all we ever see is a a little store, a little shop, and we buy some oranges and we ride a camel and we leave. Is there anything else to see in Jericho? And so this time he showed us a lot more, and we saw the walls of Jericho, and we saw the ruins of Jericho, and all that was interesting. We did see a place called Hatsor, the largest archaeological uh, tell, they call it, anywhere in Israel. And I don't know why we've never seen that before. Here it is, the biggest thing there. <laughs> we would never seen it. But it was the scene of a tremendous battle by Joshua. And uh, fascinatingly, it backed up everything about the Bible account, the Bible account as you looked at the, at the results that were there. We walked on the walls of Jerusalem. We saw the burial box of Caiaphas the high priest before whom Jesus stood. We were able to see his ossuary that they found. Herod's, Herod's sarcophagus, which they have reassembled from a bunch of rubble because the people hated Herod so much that when he died, they completely destroyed his tomb. But they found it and put it all back together, and now it's there in a museum, and you can see. They didn't find Herod. I think he was in a bunch of rubble, too. But uh, they found that. And we saw a lot of things we'd seen before. We walked to, went to the mountain of Masada, the Mount of Olives, and the Garden of Gethsemane. And we looked at the Eastern Gate and the Temple Mount and the Rabbi Tunnel, all of those things that we've seen before. We visited Nazareth and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. This time in Nazareth, there was a thing that we'd never seen before, which was a, a replica of Nazareth in the time of Christ. Fascinating. People always like going to Williamsburg here. Uh, People were all in costume and showing you what it really would have been like then as opposed to what you see now. Caesarea Philippi, Capernaum, Caesarea Maritime. We, of course, sailed on the beautiful Sea of Galilee, and that's always a a blessed part of it. We walked the streets of Jerusalem. We followed the way of the cross, the Via Dolorosa. We saw the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is one place that people believe is the site of Golgotha and and, uh, and the, t- the empty tomb. And, of course, we also saw Gordon's Calvary and the garden tomb. 
which is whether it's the right side or not, it certainly gives you the picture and it certainly gives you the idea as you stand inside of that tomb. And we had communion there in that garden. All these things are wonderful. And if you've, if you've never visited the Holy Land, you cannot imagine what it is like to stand in those places. It's, it's, it's an experience that cannot be described. Some people, uh, you know, they will say, how was your vacation? This was not a vacation. It's not a vacation to go to the Holy Land. It's a pilgrimage. It's a completely different thing. And so it's a wonderful thing. But this time, as I said, for some reason, the greatest lessons we learned had nothing to do with any of those places. It had to do with our travel and all that we went through, getting from here to there and then from there back to here again. Let me give you just a little synopsis (laughs) of what we had to go through. You know, our flight plan called for this. Our flight plan called for us to leave Chicago or leave Cleveland, fly to Chicago, where we were expecting to have a five-hour layover. Then from Chicago, we were to board Turkish Air. We, were, we had great trepidation about that. That turned out to be the best part of the whole thing. We were to board Turkish Air and uh, fly to Istanbul. And then from Istanbul, we had a one-hour layover. We were supposed to jump on another plane, another Turkish airplane, and fly to Tel Aviv. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Piece of cake. Our flight from Cleveland to Chicago was delayed. And so a great part of our five-hour layover, layover in Chicago was gone before we ever got there. Our flight to Istanbul then took off 30 minutes later yet. An 11-hour flight across the ocean, you'd think they'd make up 30 minutes, wouldn't you? They never made up the 30 minutes. And so we landed 30 minutes late in Istanbul. Remember, we only had an hour. So now we had 30 minutes to get off of the plane. It takes 30 minutes to get off the plane alone. We had 30 minutes to get off the plane, and then we had to go through uh, their security, and then we had to run from one end of the airport, a strange airport in a strange country, all the way to the other end. Oh, we also had to get on a bus off of the plane to get to the terminal in the first place. So I found myself running, literally running, well, something that I just hate to do, in an airport, <laughs> a strange airport. Why did you laugh at that? I think you took that a different way than I meant it. <laughs> running in a strange airport all the way from, and naturally our flight was clear at this end and the other flight was clear at the other end. And so I'm running, sweat pouring off me. I get all the way to the other end. I had left the whole group behind me. I said, I'll go get the plane. You just managed to get there. (laughs) As I'm getting right up to the gate, I see them coming toward me with their little kiosk. You know, the plane is gone. The plane is gone. So here I am, facing the fact that that which I had feared the most, which was missing our flight in Istanbul, had happened. Fortunately, we were able to get another flight. It was really quite simple to get another flight in in a foreign country like that. We were able to get another flight to Tel Aviv, and it arrived arrived in Israel at about 1 o'clock in the morning, uh, which was considerably later than we meant to. And so by the time all was said and done, our total travel time this time, now this is Amy's math, and you can check it out if you want. I didn't add it up. She says our total travel time was 28 hours to get from Cleveland to Tel Aviv. But you know what? Looking back now, that was the good part of the trip. (laughs) Let me tell you about the trip back. You see, the trip back started simply enough. We were to depart Tel Aviv for Istanbul on Turkish Air. We were having a 90-minute layover this time, which sounded so great. And then we were to board another Turkish Air flight to Chicago. And from there, again, another five-hour layover and then board an American Airlines flight back to Cleveland. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? The first flight from Tel Aviv went without incident. It was the last thing about the journey we did. (laughs) 
And the flight from Istanbul seemed to be going well. We actually got there. We got on a plane. All was great. We're sitting on a plane. We're thinking, oh, everything's behind us now. Until we taxied out onto the runway. And then we sat there. And we sat there. And we sat there. We'd probably been sitting there for 30 minutes or so. When the pilot came on and in his Turkish accent said, we have to sit here for another 15 minutes because of heavy traffic. Okay. 15 minutes came and went. Then 30 minutes came and went. Then an hour came and went. And then he came on again in his Turkish accent and he said, we've been sitting here for so long now that we're running low on fuel. (laughs) So now we have to go back. We have to go back to the terminal and fuel up. Three hours later, we finally taxied away and took off. No worries, though, because you will recall that we had a five-hour layover in Chicago, right? No problem. We had just burned it up on the ground there. We'd be fine time we got back. We landed in Chicago. We got through all of our security and customs and all that stuff, and we still had just enough time to go rushing to the American Airlines counter. And as we're running up there, we look into our dismay. It says, cancel, next to our flight. So I walked up to the counter, and I asked the guy, so what's the story here? And he said, it's canceled due to weather. 900 flights canceled in Chicago tonight due to weather. I said, okay, fine, whatever. Can't do anything about the weather. Get us on another flight. He said, there are no other flights. I said, how about tomorrow? Are there any other flights tomorrow? He said, no, there are no other flights tomorrow. I said, well, what are you going to do for us? What can you do? He said, there's nothing I can do for you. He said, we might possibly be able to get you on a flight Saturday morning. Now, this was Thursday night. And I'm thinking, Saturday morning? We'll just get a rental car. And we'll just drive. Chi-Town's only six hours away. We'll just drive. So we left him standing there. And we walked away with all of our luggage. And we went looking for rental cars. There were no rental cars. <laughs> there was not a single rental car anywhere in Chicago. We spent about an hour calling. Nothing. By now, it was about 11 o'clock at night, and we were all starting to get panicky about the thought of sleeping in the floor of the O'Hare Airport. And so we finally found a hotel, and we went and we checked in. Next morning, I'm up first thing in the morning calling, trying to get a rental car. I get a hold of Enterprise. 7.30 in the morning, I thought I'm going to be the first one on the phone. I called. 7.30 in the morning, and this nice lady says to me, Oh, yes, we have two minivans, because we had 11 people and tons of luggage. We have two minivans. We can accommodate you. And this is Enterprise. We pick you up. So we'll just bring it right to your hotel. Wonderful. We all got got all that taken care of. We all go to breakfast. I'm sitting there eating my breakfast, and my phone rings. And I answered, and this person says, Mr. Johnson, this is Enterprise Car Rental. Did did we rent you? Did did, did somebody tell you that, that we had two minivans? And I said, yes. As a matter of fact, I have two confirmation numbers to prove it. And he said, well, I don't know why they would have done that, because we can't rent you those vans. I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, you're going one way, and we, don't, we can't do that. We can't rent those one way. I said, I've got the confirmation numbers. <laughs> and he said, no, no, I'm sorry, I can't help you. So I was in a rather foul mood. I didn't enjoy much of my breakfast. By this time, I I decided it's time to turn this over to the the travel agency and the insurance company. We'd all bought travel insurance. Thank God, if you ever travel like this, make sure you buy the travel insurance. 
And so we had bought that, and I called them, and they, they set to work. And it made me feel a little bit better, because I was starting to feel like a chump. Like, what kind of a tour host are you that you can't get these people home? And then they couldn't get them home either, so I felt better. But a little bit later, I got this phone call from her, and she said, Mr. Johnson, I've got you, a, I've got you too many vans through National Car Rental. Now, they'll be available at 11 o'clock. The only thing is, they don't pick you up like Enterprise. You'll have to get there. I said, fine, we'll get a cab. We'll go get them. We'll come back. About 10.30, my phone rings. This guy said, Mr. Johnson, this is National Car Rental. <laughs> I said, yes. He said, did somebody rent you to <laughs> I said, I have confirmation numbers. I have them in writing. And he said, I'm sorry. We can't help you. So you can imagine what the rest of the trip was like. I'll leave the rest of it up to your imagination. By now, we were 11 people who were rapidly... <laughs> watching the joy of a wonderful trip evaporate due to the fact that we could not get out of Chicago. It's amazing to think, isn't it? It's ludicrous to think that you can go all the way around the country. You can go to Istanbul in Turkey. You can go to Tel Aviv in Israel. But it's in Chicago in the United States that you absolutely cannot get out. But we couldn't. I, I think it would be safe to say that it was a difficult journey. And I think we could sum up our trip this time by saying that everything that is wonderful about our trips to Israel, all that was true. At this particular time, it was bookended by this difficult journey. And so I think maybe some of the greatest lessons we learned this time were from that, that process. And it got me thinking about some difficult journeys the Bible describes. Because there are some that are mentioned in the Bible. Turn with me to Acts chapter 16 and let's look at one. Acts chapter 16. And we see here Paul's journey into Macedonia. Acts chapter 16. And let's start reading in verse number 1. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed. But his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to have him go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. And now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And after they had come to Mycenae, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mycenae, they came down to Troas. You know, as we read this story, this is a picture of a difficult journey that I think we have in our Bible. I think we're reminded of something that we learned on our journey as well. And that is that God controls the itinerary and not us. Paul had a map. Paul had a plan. Paul had a a journey that he was going to go on. He had an itinerary. He intended to journey from Galatia to the Roman province of Asia, but that didn't work out, and God stopped him. And then plan B was to head for Mycenae and Bithynia, but God canceled that flight too. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of this passage, makes it very clear what was happening. He says this, They went to Phrygia and then on through the region of Galatia. Their plan was to turn west into Asia province, but the Holy Spirit blocked that route. So they went to Mycenae and tried to go north to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't let them go there either. Proceeding on through Mycenae, they went down to the seaport, Troas. 
So here's this little band of travelers. Can you see them? They tried. They tried again to reach their destination, but God would not let it happen the way they wanted. Sound familiar? It sounds very familiar to me, and I'm sure it does to all those who spent a few unplanned days in Chicago recently. God had other plans for these travelers. He was in control of the itinerary, and few things will remind you of that, like experiencing that kind of a difficult journey. Miss a flight in a completely foreign country and have to navigate their systems to try to figure out how to get home, and you will immediately in your mind become aware of your lack of control. But then sit on a runway for hours in a foreign plane on foreign soil, ignorant of why you're sitting there and completely unable to do a thing about it, and you'll hear the chorus swelling within you. You are not in control. And then return to your own country where you are sure that with a phone and a credit card you could accomplish anything and you almost hear God laughing at your foolish confidence that you can in any way control. God is in control of the itinerary. On April 15, 1912, there was a particularly difficult journey. Most of you have heard about it. It was in a few papers. The RMS Titanic sailed on the North Atlantic. And, of course, that journey ended tragically for an awful lot of people, didn't it? There's an urban legend about that. Uh, as far as I can tell, it's an urban legend. It's difficult to corroborate. But we've all heard it, that someone right before the ship sailed boasted that it was an unsinkable ship. And that even God himself could not sink the Titanic. It's difficult to prove that actually happened. But the fact is, Paul learned, and the passengers aboard the Titanic learned, and even we learned in our pitiful little journey from Israel, that uh, we don't control the itinerary. God does. And so I think we need to quit plotting, and I think we need to quit manipulating, and I think we need to quit trying to make things out according to our own will and plans, and instead we need to just sit back and trust God, because you know what? He got us home, and he always does. And he always gets us, there, gets us there. The psalmist said, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. The law of his God is in his heart. None of his steps shall slide, and the Lord shall help them and deliver them. He shall deliver them from the wicked and save them because they trust in him. Again, Psalm 31, As for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your And perhaps that's the greatest lesson from that kind of a journey. Our times are in his hand. Well, that's one difficult journey, Paul's attempted journey into Macedonia. How about another one? How about another one? This would be in Acts chapter 27. Let's talk for a minute about Paul's shipwrecked journey to Rome. Talk about a difficult journey. Paul's shipwrecked journey to Rome. You see, learning that God controls the itinerary and not him, that didn't stop Paul from being a planner, and he continued to plan. He knew where he wanted to go, and he planned accordingly. In Acts chapter 19, he said, uh, we read that when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. I must also see Rome. Now, we talked about this in depth when we preached through Acts, and so I won't, I won't belabor it here today, but I want to just mention that briefly for a minute. Paul's phrase, I must see Rome. That's where he wanted to go. He believed God wanted him to go there. And if we keep reading, we find that God did indeed get him to Rome. But it turned out to be a difficult journey. And it turned out to be a journey from which Paul would learn that God may get us there, but he may also take us down some very bumpy roads. 
to get us there. Look at, at chapter 27, and let's just notice the first part. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy. Stop, right there. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy. Now that sounds good, doesn't it? He's on his way. Italy, Rome, Rome's in Italy. It sounds like he's going to make it to Rome, just like he planned. But let's keep reading a little bit. When it was decided that we should sail to Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners. Oh, wait a minute. Prisoner? Prisoner? Are, are we saying here that Paul is a prisoner? And, and yes, he is. He is headed to Rome. But he's not exactly traveling first class. He's going as a prisoner. He's going in chains. God chose a bumpier road than Paul expected. And if we read the rest of Acts chapter 27, we find out that the road continued to get more and more bumpy as he continued down. This massive storm blew up, terrified even the seasoned sailors who were on the boat. Eventually it sunk the ship. And Paul did make it to land, but he made it to land not on that boat, but on a piece of wood floating in the water. And he found that he was not at Rome at all. He was on some island, and he was in the midst of a raging rainstorm and, and uh, huddled around a fire in the midst of the rain. He eventually got to Rome, but not the way he expected, not the way he wanted. And there was tremendous hardship along the way. You see, the truth is, brothers and sisters, that even for the Christian who's in the very center of God's will, the road may be bumpy. The road may be hard. And there are, of course, other illustrations of this. As a young man, Joseph would have been an illustration of this, right? He had dreams. He had a plan for his future. He thought, I'm going to be something. I'm going to, I'm going to have a great future. And he did eventually get there. But he got there by a very bumpy road, a road that included family drama and imprisonment and slavery before he eventually saw that. And, of course, the greatest example is our Savior, our Savior himself. While we were in Jerusalem, we've seen this before, but it, it never ceases to bring tears to your eyes. While we were in Jerusalem, we went to the home of Caiaphas. This is one of the things that they know to be uh, genuine. And when you're standing there, you know you're, you're in the very place. And in the basement of what was Caiaphas's home, there's a dungeon. There's a, there's a prison cell. And as you're standing there, you realize that you're in the very place. That no doubt the Lord Jesus Christ was kept during and after his first trial before Caiaphas. We not only stood there, we also then went from there uh, down the road he would have walked, and we went to the Antonio Fortress, which was the Roman fortress at the time. And uh, you can still, you can go underneath the city of Jerusalem, and you can go down to where the ruins of that are. And you can stand on the very floor where Jesus' second trial would have taken place, and where they would have held him. And where they would have beat him and mocked him and scourged him. Where they would have stripped him of his robe and put purple on him. Crashed the crown of thorns into his head. You're standing there and you're wondering where the very blood of the Savior, the perfect Son of God, had fallen. Because you're standing there on those very rocks. You see, no one ever suffered a bumpier road to his destination than Jesus did. And any time we think our journey's rough. Anytime we think our journey is hard, fraught with trouble, we need to remember Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews said, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the blood striving against sin. And so I wonder this morning, are you traveling a bumpy road? Are you traveling a bumpy road? 
Because if so, you're in good company. And I guess the application to us this morning would be this. How you navigate that road is what people are seeing. How do you respond when you're in such a thing? How you live for Jesus when the journey gets hard. That's what people... It may be the greatest testimony that you'll ever have. It may be your greatest ministry. It may be your greatest accomplishment for the kingdom. How you live for God during that bumpy journey. Several times during our trip, during the difficulties of dealing with travel agencies and rental car companies and airlines and cabbies and hotel clerks, several times my wife, my lovely, wonderful wife, would reach over and touch me on the arm and she would say, now you need to remember to stay calm. (laughs) People, People are looking to you. You're the leader. Everybody's scared. You need to be calm. Of course, at those moments, I wanted to punch her in the face. (laughs) Because I was anything but calm. But you know, she was right. How we respond when we're on a bumpy road has got to be our greatest witness. And what we do on that journey, our greatest testimony. Paul said, I must see Rome. And he did see Rome. But God chose a particularly bumpy road to get him there. Just yesterday I was reading in Ephesians in my, in my devo- devotions, and I came across a passage I've read many times, but I never really thought of it quite this way. Paul said, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Anytime I've read that in the past, I've stopped and paused and thought about Paul's prayer there. His prayer there is, is wonderful and, and, and very instructive. This time, that little phrase, ambassador in chains, jumped out at me. I am an ambassador in chains. That could not have been Paul's desire. <laughs> that could not have been his plan when he started out on the road. On the road. But it's how it worked out. And yet here he is, languishing in prison. His planned journey seemingly in tatters. And you know what he's doing? He's writing a letter to the Ephesians. Not only did he write to the Ephesians, he wrote to the Philippians. He wrote, at another time in prison, he wrote 2 Timothy. The prison epistles. Now I want you to think for a minute about, about what this means. Here's the Apostle Paul. He's going to Rome. And when he got to Rome, no doubt he had a tremendous ministry there. And no doubt people got saved. And no doubt there will be many, many, many people in heaven when we get there. Because Paul made it to Rome. But how many people are going to be in heaven? Because Paul, somewhere along the line, got tossed into prison and wrote a few letters. How many more? How many more? Steve Green sings a song. It says, we're pilgrims on the journey on the narrow road. And those who've gone before us line the way. Cheering on the faithful, encouraging the weary. Their lives a stirring testament to God's sustaining grace. Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run the race, not only for the prize, but as those who've gone before us, let us leave to those behind us the heritage of faithfulness passed on through godly lives. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe, and the lives we live inspire them to obey. Oh, may all who come behind us find us faithful. Let me mention just a couple more and we'll be done. Real quick, here's another difficult journey. 
Jonah's fish-interrupted journey to Tarshish. That would qualify as a difficult journey, wasn't it? Jonah was a Christian. Jonah was a believer. And Jonah was given an assignment like God he didn't want any part of. And you can read about that. We won't read it this morning. You can read about it in the book that bears his name. Jonah decided that rather than do what God wanted him to do, he'd go on a little journey. And in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 3, we read that Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going down to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah said, I will run away from God. I don't want to do what God wants me to do. God has plans for my life, but I'm not interested, and so I'm going the exact opposite direction. And I'm not going to belabor the point this morning because the lesson is clear, isn't it? This was a difficult journey, but it was a difficult journey of his own making. You can't run away from God. You cannot run away from God. And so this morning, if you're on a Jonah-type journey, you need to turn around now before God sends a fish and turns you around. Paul's shipwreck journey is a reminder that even for the Christian, in the center of God's will, the road might be bumpy. Jonah is a reminder to us that the Christian who's trying to run away from God is going to have an even bumpier road. Proverbs. Chapter 13, good understanding gains favor, but the way of the unfaithful, the way of the transgressor, is hard. And it is hard. One last one, and we'll be done. This one's in Luke chapter 16. Let's talk just for a minute about the rich man's journey to hell. The rich man's journey to hell. And I saved this one to last for last, but in reality it's the most important. It's the first and foremost in matter of importance. We may not... We may not, as believers, ever face something like Paul did on trying to get into Macedonia. We may not experience what he did on his shipwrecked journey. We may not run away from God and find ourselves, uh, you know, suffering a journey like Jonah did. But all of us have to deal with this one. All of us have to deal with this journey. Luke chapter 16 said, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. This is the one journey that we all must face. And there are only two possible destinations on this journey. Lazarus the beggar chose wisely and he's in heaven today. The rich man chose foolishly and he is in hell today. It's interesting, isn't it, that this most important of journeys, this last journey, this one that we all have to face, is so fast. The rich man's journey to hell didn't take any time at all. He died and he was instantly there. Instantly at his final destination. There was no layovers on that one. There was no delays. There was no cancellation. There was no nothing straight and true to hell. And so I wonder this morning which one you are on. Heaven or hell. See, all of these are difficult journeys, aren't they? And there's probably many more that we could talk about, but I'll stop. Difficult journeys. Perhaps. Perhaps you're on a difficult journey where you feel out of control, like perhaps Paul did on the attempt to get into Macedonia. Or maybe you've been thinking the road's getting bumpier and bumpier on your journey, as perhaps Paul did on his shipwrecked journey.
trip to Rome. I started out this message this morning by pointing out that our trip was wonderful, but the journey on either end was so difficult. Some people have already asked me, would you do it again? And I say in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. We're already planning the next trip. I will admit that in the midst of all this, while we were in the midst of the worst of the travel snafus, I turned to my wife one time in, 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 when no one else was listening, and I said, we're never doing this again. <laughs> never. But now we're past that part of the journey. And we look back on the trip and rejoice in all that God did. You know, concerning difficult journeys in life, some people are of the mindset, you know what, I'm not willing to put myself through that. I'm going to stay where it's perfectly safe all the time and where I never have to deal with that. And you know what, I think that's sad because you miss out on so much. Even the difficult journeys have much to say to us. One man said a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. And so I would do it again. If God has put you on a difficult journey, then walk in it. He put you there. Walk it. Run it. Live where God wants you to live. Experience what God wants you to experience. Because one of these days, He's going to get you to the end of that, and you're going to rejoice to see all that He has done in your life. Maybe this morning you're on a Jonah journey. Maybe God's calling you. It is impossible for me to believe that in a church of this size, God is not calling some to service. Maybe you find yourself fleeing toward Tarshish, saying, I'm going to run away from God. I'm not going to do what God has to say. You know, there's only two possible ends to that kind of a journey. Either you're going to turn yourself around, or God is going to turn you around. And I think the former is better. Turn around, brother. Turn around, sister. Before God sends a fish. Because you cannot run away from God. And then finally, what about that most important journey? Which road are you on? Heaven or hell? The Bible is clear that all of us start out on the road to hell. Every single one of us. We have to choose Christ in order to get to heaven. No one gets to heaven without that. And so I wonder this morning, have you called upon the name of the Lord that you might be saved? Have you done that? Have you believed on Jesus Christ for the saving of your soul? Have you done that? Do you know? And I emphasize the word know because that's the word the Bible uses. The Bible says we can know. Do you know that if you were to die today, you are saved, you would go to heaven? Do you know it? You see, none of the other journeys we've talked about matter a whit if you don't have that one right. The most important one of all. And so if you're not on the road to heaven, nothing else matters. If you've been putting off that journey, would you start it today? Would you decide today that you're going to get off the road to hell and on the road to heaven? That you'll trust Christ as your Savior? Would you pray and ask Him? You have to do that. Pray. Pray and ask Him. Say something like this, Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I'm on my way to hell. I also know that you died on the cross to save me from my sins. I repent of my sin. Lord, I believe and I'm asking that you be my Savior. You have to do that. If you're going to be on the journey, on the road to heaven, tell him from this moment on, I'm trusting you and will live for you. And thank him for saving you. Have you done it? If you've never prayed it before, pray it now. Because if you do, you'll avoid the most difficult journey of them all.